0: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, Corrections and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Gaia.
1: My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and it's joining me for the hour uh, Patrick Watson, uh, economics journalist, editor at uh, Molden Economics. Now, Patrick, I'm glad you're spending the time here with me. I had Jerry Dillion on before, I had. I had Malden himself on before, so now you're going to be the third one from the illustrious group. For those who are not familiar with your background, talk about who you are. How'd you get involved in markets and looking at the economy, and what do you do now?
2: Okay, well, right now I'm working with John Malden at Malden Economics. I'm a macro analyst mainly. We write about the Federal Reserve, central banks, trade, all these sort of things. And we try to help our subscribers make sense of it and figure out how that fits into their investment strategy. I started out actually as. from the policy side as, as a political scientist, and then moved into that into writing. I was uh, worked for several different publishers. I was a portfolio manager for a while. So I've, I've been around different aspects of this business for, for some time, but my favorite of all of it is
1: what I'm doing now. Okay, so relevant to what's going on today as we discuss this, Fed comes out, hike rates by 75 basis points. The old adage is that you never really know what the market's reaction is until 24 hours after the decision. And, of course, you've got a press conference coming up. You mentioned trying to make sense of this from the perspective of uh, how do you make money in an environment which is so dominated by headline risks. Talk about how you're assessing the Federal Reserve's actions here. A lot of people will say that they've been very late to the game. A lot of people will say that they created the monster and they have to fix it. Talk about your assessment of how well or poorly the Fed has done here.
2: Yeah, well, I agree with both of those. They are very late in doing what needs to be done. And it's not just a matter of the last year or two. This goes back decades to a Fed that has repeatedly acted too late, tried to please markets rather than meet its mandate of price stability and full employment. And it's to the point now they really have no good options left. What they can do is choose the least bad option. And that's where we are now. So inflation was not a concern for a very long time. Now it is. And we can maybe talk later about what's causing that. But they are the ones we expect and the Congress has given the job of maintaining price stability, which means keeping inflation under control. So they're doing what they have to do. They lack the tools to really address this particular inflation effectively, because it is stemming more from things like energy prices and supply chain woes than, than monetary policy. But you know, they're doing what they have to do by tightening interest rates. It is a very blunt instrument. It is going to take a long time to work, and it's going to have significant side effects. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of better choices.
1: Okay. So you mentioned that this is something that's been kind of decades in the making. And I've used that that line on Twitter before that inflation is not a monetary phenomenon. It's a leadership phenomenon, right? Because you can argue that You can prevent inflation if you just have a degree of austerity and discipline, austerity from the U.S. government or governments in general, and then discipline in terms of hiking rates based on some, you know, perhaps rules-based type of approach. Is it fair to say that Greenspan was sort of the first Fed governor to really kind of go all out and basically just respond to market movements as if that's one of the mandates? Because when Greenspan came in, the Fed was hiking rates, 87 crash happened, and then they immediately started to lower rates again. Talk about that transition of the Fed from a force that's supposed to stabilize economic prices to a force that stabilizes market prices. Yeah,
2: certainly Greenspan was, was the origin of this because his predecessor was Paul Volcker, who we know in 1979, 1980 era hiked rates far more aggressively than, than anyone is talking about right now. So you get into the 90s and you had some, you know, several smaller crises. There was a, there was a crisis about the Mexican peso. There was an Asian debt crisis. There was an, an, a Russian debt crisis. And in each of those events, the Federal Reserve acted quickly to prevent the kind of fireworks that would have harmed markets and investors. And each time they did it, it became harder to not do it the next time. And in that process, I think it was forgotten that markets, even bear markets, have a function. They are what clear out mistakes. And that is painful for the ones who made the mistakes. But if the alternative is to protect anyone from the price of their mistakes, then you don't have markets anymore. You have something that just doesn't work. And that is kind of the course they set. Then concurrently with that, you had on the fiscal side, you had government authorities of both parties. It's not really a partisan thing, but it 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 became their habit to simply give the public whatever it wanted and protect people from consequences of whatever bad things were happening and that's That's not really new either, but it intensified in this in this period and then that all led up. To 2008, when they were faced with an even greater crisis, potentially meltdown of of the whole financial system, and that, of course, they have to prevent. That is a different matter than propping up the economy and keeping private companies in business that had made mistakes and that rightly should have gone out of business. So we're there. They struggled for the decade after 2008 to get out of the pattern they had put themselves in. Never could. They tried. And in, if you recall, there was an episode in 2018 where, well, Yellen had actually started a tightening campaign. Then Powell came in and abandoned it under market pressure. You know, John, John Malton and I wrote at the time that he crawled at it. That's a Texas phrase we use. And that sent worse signals. Then COVID came along. And again, like 2008, they had to react to that to, main, you know, to keep the system stable. They waited too long to remove the accommodations they had made. And here we are. It led to the inflation that they're struggling with right
1: now. So use the, uh, use the term bear markets serve the function of clearing out mistakes. I wonder if that's what's happening with the bond market clearing out the Fed's mistakes in terms of yield suppression. Talk about what's happened here from your vantage point to the bond market, because th- this has been a crash. I mean, it's funny. People say yields are spiking, but they're not realizing that yield spiking means prices crashing with bond issuances and and different funds and strategies. But that move has been really re- remarkable. The drawdown in bonds is pretty much the same, if not more than the drawdown in stocks. Is that the bond market clearing out the Fed's mistakes from decades of thinking that inflation really just wasn't there? Partially,
2: but you know, some, something kind of interesting has happened just in, in the last week or two, which I'm still trying to figure out the, the significance of this. And, the, and that is you know, for a long time, markets wanted lower rates. And there were fireworks every time the Fed tried to raise rates. Something seemed to twist around last week with that CPI report. So now we have the markets agitating for the Fed to do more than, rather, rather than less because apparently inflation they someone has now realized that inflation is a worse problem than they thought and suddenly they want they want a white knight to rescue them and they're looking to the fed
1: i think that the challenge there is that you're right everybody now is viewing hikes as potentially being bullish because it means conceivably you end the inflation problem sooner but then we go back to the name of the space which is that hiking rates won't break oil so this gets into discussion around what are really the sources behind this inflation and how much can the Fed control of it? Talk about how you're viewing commodities and how commodities might be impacting whatever the Fed does next
2: Yeah so commodities are interesting because they they're a lot more purely affected by supply and demand factors and it has reached the point now where supply has been interrupted, particularly in energy but also some other materials, metals and so on. And, and Grains uh, that supply lower supplies in the absence of lower demand will raise prices. Economics 101. So, this was all now. Here's what people aren't quite grasping, I think. This all started before Ukraine, it was in the COVID era. OPEC cut its quotas substantially. to, to If you remember back when COVID first hit, oil prices briefly went negative below zero. So, they cut production dramatically. And kept it very low for too long, uh, too low, too long. Kind of like the Fed. <laughs> so it was last summer, last July and August, that people were hoping. Uh, you know, as it became clear that that COVID was passing, that or the economic part of it, at least, the world began needing more energy supply than OPEC was providing, or that, or that anybody else would be able to provide. And they they did not respond quickly enough. So we saw. Oil and gas prices ri- begin rising. And then a few months later, you had the Ukraine event and this, in response to it, the sanctions cut off Russian supplies. And concurrent with all that, you've got a U.S. oil industry, oil and gas industry that is not willing or able to increase production very much. So we just don't have the supply we need to meet the demand that exists. So that's driving prices up. And so far, there's not a lot of sign that people are reducing their demand. You can go out on the highways. I I drove from Austin to Dallas and back last weekend, and I didn't see any sign that anyone is concerned about gasoline prices. There were lots of large pickups driving very fast, pulling boats and jet skis on their trailers. You know, a lot of trucks, big trucks carrying various kinds of cargo. Air- airports are packed, I'm told. I haven't been in one lately. So it doesn't look like there's a lot of reduction in the amount of energy we are wanting to buy. We are swallowing the higher prices. How long we'll do that, I don't know. Uh, not indefinitely. But as long as we are willing to pay the higher
1: prices, the higher prices will continue, and that's that's where we are, I wonder what at what point that demand destruction really starts to to kick in right? because to your point, and I see it myself too traveling. I mean there's really no abatement of of anything on that end. Price does not seem to be curing price in terms of demand destruction and increasing the cost of money so far as it hasn't really done much either. What do you think would break let's call it the animal spirits? that have been keeping people active and still going out despite higher prices. I mean, is it just a function of it's got to last there for a while and people have to feel pain for some degree of time, or is it that prices just have to get a lot higher?
2: Yeah. Well, I I think that varies a lot depending who it is. You know, there are very wealthy people that none of this bothers them. Then there are less wealthy and not wealthy people who are having to pay for this somehow, either through their wages or, or, Their credit cards, or their home, home equity loans, or whatever, they can't do that forever. Higher interest rates make it harder for them to do that. That happens, or is happening slowly. So that is why I I say what the Fed is doing is a blunt instrument, but it's all they have. The uh, raising interest rates can reduce inflation pressure only by affecting people who depend on interest rates, which means people who are buying something with borrowed money. So what they're doing, the initial effect and the worst effect is, is going to be on the most highly leveraged transactions. So what are those? Well, the biggest loan most people ever make is their home, buying a house or, or a condo. And that is already happening. We've seen mortgage rates go up tremendously. And I just saw some, where is it? So John Burns Real Estate Consulting, they 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 track the number of households who can qualify for mortgages based on income and interest rates. So since January, if you're looking at a $400,000 mortgage, 18 million fewer households can qualify than, than could six months ago. So that's a 36% reduction in the potential demand for $400,000 homes. And that feeds through to contractors, to the people who work in construction to the companies that sell all the construction materials, to all the stuff that people buy to go in their new homes. So all that's that process is underway. It's happening. It's happening slowly, which is why we're not seeing the demand destruction yet.
1: Yeah, which which makes a a lot of sense. Okay, now, one way you could um, perhaps get demand destruction is some kind of, let's call it, more classic deflationary crisis the crisis right now is inflation but usually historically the the tail events tend to coincide with sort of disinflation or deflation scares liquidity scares and this has been odd because you can argue liquidity has been coming out of the system really since february of last year even though there's so much uh, inflationary pressure i want you to talk a little bit about patrick i don't know how much you track currencies but i, I alluded to this idea before that it, it almost looks like there's some kind of sovereign debt crisis looming in the background given the way uh, the yens behaved to be given the way the dollars behaved uh there, there's a lot of really big movements happening in the in the currency space um talk about how you were if you are at all assessing sort of risks that might be coming or maybe signals that might be coming from currency movement that's so extreme here yeah i i,
2: I think you're right the we see it in, in in europe as well the the ecb is in my opinion even, even less responsible than the Federal Reserve. And they desperately need to get out of their box. They, they really can't because they would set off debt crises in some of their own member countries. And they are unable. The, the euro Eurozone does not have a common fiscal policy like the United States does, but it does have a common currency policy. So that makes their job more complicated then over in japan you know they've been they've been practicing yield curve control for several years now pretty successfully and i think a couple of years of COVID isolation is catching up to them long spillover from china and that's becoming more difficult to sustain I'm, i'm less worried about japan than i am about europe though i think there is a serious potential for a repeat of the the uh 2010 kind of Sovereign debt crisis and it, it will be someone bigger than Greece this time
1: yeah I think that's where it gets to be kind of interesting right because that again the dollars movement to me suggests that something is odd in currency land so to speak so let's take it down to the the asset allocation level for a moment because in a year like this it's been very hard to get true diversification unless you have commodities and let's face it most people don't tend to have commodities and those that have commodities now you know are probably Maybe a little bit late, given momentum has been so strong for you know just the sequence of returns this year. How do you think about managing risk in this kind of environment and and getting maybe different correlations because everything's kind of acting the same here for the most part?
2: Yeah, that, and the, this is this is what we've seen in in past past scenarios like this. Uh, you have historic correlations, and people make these asset allocation models based on them that. This goes down when this goes up and so on. And then that works great until suddenly it doesn't, which was another one of the roots of all this that we were talking about a minute ago. Back in the 90s, you had the long-term capital management thing. That, that was exactly what happened. They had billions of dollars running on those models, which their Nobel prizes told them were infallible, but they weren't. So how, how do you manage risk in this environment? I, it, it is a, It is a really tough time. And I don't have a good answer to that. I will say this, by, by all kinds of valuation metrics, the stock market seems not to have as much upside as, as many people think. But I have to temper that by saying, I thought that same thing three or four years ago. So this is this is what happens in, in, in markets. They, they go a lot farther in both directions than anyone thinks they can. So in terms of managing risk at this point... You know, I think you have inflation hedges, you have cash, you have whatever other risk assets you're comfortable with, but certainly make sure that you have enough quickly accessible cash to meet your living expenses and your debt payments for some length of time.
1: We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. yeah, I think that's that's underestimated by by people. You can't really control the timing of the outcome of your investments, but you can control your spending to some extent, right? And I think oftentimes people think that the answer is to make more money when maybe it's just about being more profitable with the money you already have, which means having to make some tough choices with the substitutes. Now, the problem as we know, is that it's hard to get substitutes for lower price items, you know, uh, if oil is going to keep going higher, you can argue that, well, you just walk more, right? But that's not really going to be uh, easy for a lot of people in the middle of the country where they have to commute you know, long distances to, to go to work. Talk about that point about substitution for a moment. And if maybe the Federal Reserve has been uh, fooling itself and thinking that inflation really was low for as long as it was because the argument is that people can switch to lower-priced items and that ends up having a sort of a – puts a ceiling on inflation. So I think that's one of the the real mistaken uh, notions the Fed has, that substitutions are the answer to inflation when it's clear that that's not really so simple. Yes, I I agree
2: with that. And and we have additional complications this time because the things you might substitute may be sitting on a ship anchored all Shanghai where you can't get to them. So often this idea that I'll just buy – A cheaper brand of whatever this is that cheaper brand may not be there and you see that with with vehicles particularly you know if your your old car breaks down and uh you need you need wheels to get to work you know what do you do you can't afford a new car well it used to be you would buy a cheap used car well used cars aren't cheap anymore so the ability to substitute because of the nature of this inflation because of the supply chain breakdowns that occurred from the COVID era, that ability is not there in the same sense it was before. Now it is similar. Inflation periods generally incentivize people to stockpile, and and businesses they incentivize to stockpile because the price of whatever you're going to need is probably going up, so you're better off buying it sooner rather than later. In this case, there's the additional complication of you may not be able to get it later, so you're better off getting it now. So if you see it on the shelf. And you know you're going to need it next month, you buy it now while you can. so that's happening, and it's driving retailers crazy, I think trying to manage their inventories to meet all this because they have spent years crafting everything to be hyper efficient just in time, where stuff doesn't sit on shelves very long so that's that's a real problem and and it's it's something that uh, I don't have a good answer for,
1: and it's it's making all this worse. Let's talk about that psychology for a moment. I think this is this is an interesting. And I give credit to to Doomberg for this thought uh, when he was on one of my spaces, which is the little green chicken. It's got some phenomenal content. But it, Doomberg basically made the argument that in the age of social media, you have to be very careful about inflation expectations because inflation is very emotional. People will retweet, like, share anything that confers their belief that prices are going to go higher, which then creates sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy of people thinking prices will go higher which causes the very behavior you're talking about a degree of hoarding and buying sooner than later because it's cheaper to do that as opposed to wait how has i don't know if you ever if you've kind of thought about it from that angle but what are your thoughts on how social media is playing into what's happening in the economy here because if it's really based on psychology and the idea that people simply don't expect prices to go down that seems to be very hard for the fed to counter if it's Kind of a, a belief by the citizens of the us that uh, no matter what prices keep going up, so buy now yeah well th- th- this, is what, this is what markets are
2: and what uh, you know, in one sense what an entire economy is. It is an information processing mechanism prices are information. Uh, the fact you know w- what level they're at and whether they're rising or falling tells you something about them that that you then apply in your decision whether to buy. so anything that makes information flow more efficiently or faster or slower affects these decisions. So yes, social media, be it Twitter, Facebook, whatever, all that is making it easier for people to see what's going on, or more to your point, to think they see what's going on, which may not be accurate because there's nobody policing all this to to make sure it's accurate. So yeah, people get wrong ideas and you know rush to buy this thing that there's really plenty of, but they think it's going to disappear, so they rush to buy it now, and that that happens all the time. But in in, in these times, it's more significant because people, other people, see it, and you get these widening circles of of uh, kind of puzzlement. What's going on? Then they get concerned. You know, is this going to affect me? Then they start panic. Yes, it's going to affect me. I've got to, I've got to fill my gas tank now. You know, I don't, I, I, I saw a few weeks ago, there's a service station near my home. I drive by all the time. I drove by and there were cars and pickups lined up all the way around the building, several dozen of them at the gas pumps. And, and like, what is that about? I don't know. I drove on. I didn't need gas, but I drove on and I thought, man, well, something going on. Did a pipeline break? Was is, you know, have I missed something here? And other service stations did not have that. Everything seemed normal. So I don't know what was going on there. But yeah, to your point, rumors can spread. Things can happen. People get the wrong idea and they spend money they don't have to, or they fail to get things that they should be getting. And this creates bottlenecks in the economy. And we, you know, ultimately, it all feeds into GDP because the things that should be happening to maximize everyone's income and growth don't happen because we're doing other stuff that doesn't make sense.
1: All right, I want to I want to get a little bit into into the kind of interactions you have with with John Malden and and the crew. I've always been a big fan of John's for many years, and was glad that he came on and did one of these spaces not too long ago. You're correct if I'm wrong, but you're basically sort of under the the Malden umbrella, putting out your own research and content. Is there a degree of coordination in terms of viewpoints? Do You just kind of talk to John and maybe Jared Dillian about what what you're seeing. How does how does that interplay among the group work? Yeah, so my role is I work directly with John
2: Malden. On he writes his weekly newsletter, Thoughts from the Frontline. So I help him with the research for that. I have another service called Over My Shoulder that John and I are co-editors of. We we look for economic research and kind of write summaries for it I, uh, that, to make it comprehensible to people. So that's that's something I enjoy doing. I think of myself as kind of a a translator between. These sophisticated economic people and the average investor. So I like I like simplifying things to help them understand it. But my role is with John for the most part, and and we work together really well because going way back, John is the one who actually found me in in 1990. I was in the in a doctoral program at Rice University and headed to an academic career, and John I met John through a strange series of events, and John convinced me that uh, working for him would be a lot more fun and lucrative, which it was. And so I worked with him for several years back then, then we both went and did other things for a while, and then about seven years ago, got back together. So we, I can help John really effectively because John is the one who sort of taught me about all this.
1: and i don't know if it's fair to characterize it this way but at least from a lot of the research i've seen from john over the years it you know, tends to tilt a little bit more on the bearish side i would say more realistic side right because that's kind of the joke about being negative right you can be negative and someone will say you're overly bearish and you say well you're just realistic about the environment but i am curious about the 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 audience are a lot of people that that Read uh, your work Molden's work, Jared's work, do they tend to have a more bearish tilt themselves, or is this a situation where people are just looking for different viewpoints, and you know what you offer is unique in that in that sense? That's a really good question because one one thing that the public doesn't see is
2: the feedback we get from our readers, right, and strangely enough, it is all over the board we have. Politically, we have people very left-wing, very right-wing, We have and everything in between. We have what you would call perma-bears. We have technology investors who are very optimistic. We have crypto people. It's a very wide range of interests and, and orientations, which is one of the things I really like about, about doing this, because we're not, you know, we're not speaking from a certain defined perspective that we always have to defend. And you know any, anybody who follows John and I both on Twitter will know that we we are we have very different beliefs about a lot of stuff, but b- because we go back so far, because we have a lot of respect for each other, we can do that you know very effectively and help each other work through things and get through to the actual facts, which is kind of unusual nowadays, and it's very refreshing.
1: It's it's funny that fact finding is unusual now. <laughs> Right. Because and I'm not I'm I'm not I'm not poking fun at that at the point because I agree with it. It's just everything now is so narrative driven that the moment you push back with any kind of real data to counter a narrative. Unfortunately, in the social media world, you're branded as somebody who doesn't get it. And that often tends to, I think, be kind of an interesting signal of of there being too much liquidity when people start confusing the amount of uh, easy money there is with the reasons to buy something without critical thought right that often to me is more a sign that the fed should hike rates yesterday as opposed to waiting for some economic data point talk about that sentiment a little bit more in terms of not just your readers but how do you think about sentiment from a macro perspective in terms of identifying new opportunities to invest in
2: yeah so that that's a really that's a really good question sentiment used to be you know fairly easy to track you would see Individual stocks are going up and down, indexes, and people are bearish, people are bullish, whatever. That's probably another effect of social media is it's much easier for people to have a tunnel vision on a particular part of the market and for them to move independently of other things. So tracking sentiment, well, you have to ask sentiment about what? And and that's going to be all over the board. You can have people who are very bullish on whatever, gold, Bitcoin, Tesla, and people who think otherwise, who never ever look at anything else and don't think about, well, what what is it? What are the factors that are going to make this asset go up in price? They see that it is rising and that's all they really want to know or think they need to know. And so they jump aboard. And often that doesn't end well. But that is, that is kind of the way markets work. It's it's why things are interesting. I, I believe.
0: Do you find that
1: um, with the advent of retail a- accessibility of, of investing that macro becomes less important than micro because everyone, to your point, is so fixated on a particular investment story like GameStop, like Tesla, whatever it would be that they become blindsided to what's going around in the environment. It, it seems to me that. There are a lot of experts on – or let's call them so-called experts – on idiosyncratic aspects of a company, but they're not necessarily thinking about the implication of the environment that the company's operating in being perhaps a bigger determinant of performance than whatever fundamental analysis they're doing.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And this, again, goes back to the Federal Reserve and some government policies because we have, for quite a few years now, have prevented – the market forces that would once have sent the signal: this company is a whacked-out idea that is not going to work. Uh, well, as long as it can borrow money at negative real rates, it is going to work, and the stock price can keep rising. So th- they are they are preventing the information that these people need that that might convince them or demonstrate to them this is this investment is a bad idea. But, you know that's not there. The Fed is preventing it from being there by. Allowing companies that have no rational financial reason to continue existing, but monetary policy lets them do it, so that's a big problem because then people invest in things that they shouldn't, and they end up losing money, and and that may actually be, you know, as I think about it here, that is potentially a deflationary force. You know, that, that's what the Fed is aiming for here. They want to. Reduce the wealth effect of all the people who own stocks in real estate that are have all this money on paper that they then use to justify their spending. Uh, so the, the pain these people are going to go through who made bad decisions is what's going to help reverse this whole situation.
3: We'll be back
1: after a quick break. You know, you know. As I hear you talk about that, that, and I, I agree with this idea. That makes it sound like the Fed actually wants to see some bankruptcies, in the sense that you've got a lot of these zombie companies that really should not be around, as you alluded to. They've been on life support and don't have good fundamentals. They're very, very highly levered. They rely on very cheap credit just to survive. If you want to break inflation, you've got to break. Also, you know, put an end to some of these zombie companies, take them out of out of the picture to some extent. I would think because that bankruptcy is inherently a de- deflationary event, right? Yeah, this is the quandary they're in. As I was saying, there's no
2: good choices here because, yes, there's a lot of zombie companies that need to go away, but they have employees, and their employees have families. So, sending these companies where they need to go is going to hurt people. There, there are no two ways out that. That's I don't think is what the Fed wants. I, you know, I think the, these are human beings. They don't, I don't believe they want to make people suffer. They may be ignorant of the suffering they're going to cause, but that they don't have any better alternatives. Because, yeah, some companies need to go out of business. Some people need to lose their money. That is the cleansing mechanism that is ultimately going to end this inflation. They think, and I'm watching Powell on TV here, I'm not sure what he's saying, but I suspect, you know, if you could put him on a truth serum, they think they can walk this narrow path of letting the air out of the bubble. You know, we'll have, you know, a few companies go bankrupt. You know, everybody will kind of pull back. You know, some people will have to wait to buy their houses, but they won't, unemployment won't go up very much. Small businesses will be okay. Yada yada. They probably think that they can find this optimal path through all of it and get inflation under control without sparking a severe recession. They don't have a real good history of doing that. So I don't think that that's certainly not what I expect, but it may be what
1: they are aiming for. What could be a sort of a lucky break for the Fed? Because right? it seems to me that there is a logic that they want to somewhat slow play, somewhat, let's argue, hiking rates, because maybe the supply chain over time kind of catches up. And you know, prices just naturally kind of revert down. Is there is there some kind of catalyst that you think would help the Fed out in terms of breaking inflation beyond their own blunt tool? What it would take
2: is something to dramatically push down energy prices. Because that's kind of the core problem here. What would that be? Well, the most likely is that you get more supply from somebody like Iran or Venezuela, where they, they still have capacity that they haven't tapped. That would help. I don't think it's gonna happen from Russia because you know, they've lost access to the Western technology that, that lets them produce. So I don't see more supply coming from there, even if the Ukraine thing should get resolved. But, and this may be happening. You know, Biden is going to Saudi Arabia next month. You know, why is that? And he's getting a lot of heat from it for about it because of the you know the whole bone saw thing so why is why is he even going i I don't think he has any illusion that the Saudis are going to produce anymore because I don't think they can not significantly they're not even they're not even meeting their current quota. What he might be doing is consulting with them about some sort of deal to lift sanctions on Iran that would be the kind of lucky break you're talking about. It would give the Fed a little, I don't think it wouldn't solve all of this,
1: but it would it would help. So that's, a, that's an interesting spin because especially given his poll numbers, he needs a win. And it seems to me that if somehow something could be brokered that somehow resulted in oil prices going down that he could take credit for, that would not only help the Fed, but probably help his approval rating. So you, you can make an argument that 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 probably has to come. That he'll do whatever it takes, you know, at the negotiating table to, to engineer that.
2: Yeah, and I, I don't know that he can. And, and trying and failing might be even worse politically. But you know, in terms of what what might bail out the Fed, we need some sort of fast acting deflationary medicine, and that's going to have to be uh, lower energy prices I, 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 when they're not short of the kind of demand destruction that doesn't seem to be happening yet that's going to have to come from additional supply there's not a lot of places that can quickly increase their output that's you know that's one of the few let's go to uh, for a question hopefully it's not too ironic okay by them i assume you mean just investors in general but yeah that's the effect of higher interest rates on stocks they make fixed income assets of all kinds Relatively more attractive, and if you can get three, four, five percent from a pretty safe bond, then a lot of people will buy that instead of putting their money into the S and P 500 or whatever individual stock. And over time, as more people do that, it reduces the bullish sentiment on the stock side. So that's uh, that is likely to happen. I think I think it's going to happen slowly unless they rate, unless
1: they get a lot more aggressive in raising rates but it's it's happening. Is there um let's talk about bonds here again for a bit so there is going to be a point presumably where it makes sense to buy bonds <laughs> that 60 that 40 is not going to be dead forever. Is, is there is there something when you look at bonds when you look at maybe readers that are focused on on income producing assets is there something that you're on the look at that you'd say to to readers? Okay, this is now when you really should consider maybe going back into into bonds and playing some of these higher yields, it, or is this already still too early in this in this inflationary cycle to have confidence that bonds can actually get you some real return?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, I think we are too early for that. Um, you know, you've still got in, in real terms negative rates, well out the well out the yield curve. In a lot of different currencies, so, but I, I do think there are limits to this, as to how high long-term rates can go, because there is so much debt out there, and everything we know about the government says they are going to continue adding to the debt at a prodigious rate. So that has the effect, and there's a process to that. So as they issue more debt, that seems to have a upward effect on on interest rates yes it does but what it also does is each additional dollar of debt has less of a stimulus of effect on the economy so it reduces gdp growth so ultimately more debt pushes interest rates down i don't think we're to that point yet but that's why i believe you've seen over decades this this long-term
1: downtrend in treasury yields as the gro- as the debt grows yeah and i think that's that's why i'm i'm more in the sort of um longer term disinflation deflationary camp because unless you do resolve the debt in some way shape or form debt is inherently deflationary the the weight of that debt becomes too big to bear it's effectively the japan trap it's funny how seemingly that narrative has been lost around the fact that you've got this interesting tug of war between commodity cost push inflation demand pull because of all the stimulus money but then you still have in the background the context of this huge cloud rain cloud of debt that you can't necessarily escape from
2: yeah and it's growing and you know I, we just did John and I just did some analysis on this in the last couple of weeks and yeah you're gonna have a 50 trillion dollar federal debt in in the next 10 years based on some you know a very reasonable set of expectations which is bananas uh, I, I don't see that being even possible so at some point before then, Something's got to happen to resolve all this. I don't know what that's going to be, it, it, and it's probably not going to be pretty. John John calls it the Great Reset, that we're going to eventually, at some point, we're all going to have to hold hands and jump together and have some sort of Old Testament-style jubilee thing. I, mean, I don't know. I, but at some point, it all becomes unworkable. Eventually, tax revenue doesn't even cover the government's interest cost. So then what?
1: Yeah, and and I will say that I've been on that point, too, that I, I don't see how this environment can persist much longer without something very severe happening to the system. Because to your point, you've got a double whammy of higher interest expense and tax receipts are naturally going to be lower because unemployment will pick up because capital gains are not there anymore, right? So you're going to end up seeing revenue, presumably from the government side, also be diminished when you have so much starting debt that seems like to your point sort of the end of end of the world great reset type of type of scenario but the question of course then becomes well is that even worth betting on because then who the hell cares about investment portfolios because the whole system is going to look totally different anyway so with that context again i go back to practically speaking for those that are worried about that scenario what do you suggest people do i'm not i'm not talking about necessarily where to invest in but What's the right mindset, the right way of approaching the future? How how do people respond to that very real scenario that could be coming?
2: Yeah, great question. And the way I'd answer it is this, that the most important asset you have is your own earning power. And that is a function of having a family and a community that support you. So the best thing people can do to get ready for whatever is coming is to be a productive member of their community who takes care of their family and whatever their other responsibilities are, because that is always there. You know, If everything else goes to hell, you know the people that are in the mile or two around you are there, and they can either be helpful to you or not helpful to you. So I think everyone needs to make a conscious effort to be part of your surroundings, wherever you are. And that is what will prepare you for any bad times that are coming.
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's a good reminder for everybody, just that sometimes it's more about your friends and family and just having the right kind of support system in what could be a very unsupportive economic regime that's coming. So everybody's here, as usual, I appreciate those that keep on coming back to these spaces. So please make sure you follow Patrick, check out Molden Economics. I'm always a big fan of everything that they put out. Patrick, I really do appreciate you spending the time here with us and uh, everybody enjoy the rest of your day.
3: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes corrections, and bear markets.